welcome to all those of you who are gathered with us to worship our great God this morning. It's wonderful to see all of you. I invite you to uh, turn to a passage of Scripture, well-known passage of Scripture, John 3, 16 and following. This morning we will look at uh, the Gospel of John 3, 16 to 3, 21. John 3.16, let's hear God's word together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we confess that you are exalted above all things, and you are worthy to be loved above all things in our lives. Father, we confess that often we love other things, created things, above you, and that's the source of so much misery. Father, we ask that this morning you would use your word to rightly order our loves. Cause us to delight in you supremely and cherish you above all things. Grant us to behold the Scripture's witness to your love for us in Jesus Christ, to believe it with all of our hearts, and to respond with a reciprocal love for you. Deepen our commitment to you this morning, we ask, and to your Son, Jesus. Uh, And Father, grant us eyes to see. We confess that apart from the intervention of your Holy Spirit in our heart, we are spiritually blind and deaf and unresponsive. But we ask that you would graciously Work in us through your spirit this morning to make us responsive and to cause us to bow the knee to your word. Amen. The fundamental command of Scripture is to love God. All of the other commands of Scripture flow from this basic command. So, for example, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. God calls us to exhibit a white-hot intensity in our affection for him that spills over in obedience to other commands. If you keep the other commands, like do not lie, for instance, uh, without keeping the more fundamental command, love God, there's a sense in which you're not even keeping the command, do not lie as you ought. Everything that we do for God ought to be the overflow of a deep love for him. So that raises the question, how do we grow in our love for God? If everything flows out of that love, how do we deepen in our love for him? Well, at the heart of growing in your love for God is seeing the love that he has displayed for you in Jesus Christ. As you behold that love more and more, you respond to God with deeper and deeper love. You see this in 1 John 4:19, for instance, 
where we are told that we love because, his, because he first loved us. His love conquered our resistance to him, as it were, and we responded with a reciprocal love. Uh, this morning, we have the opportunity to meditate on one of the most profound biblical affirmations of God's love, uh, John 3.16. And we will see this morning uh, three things especially about God and about his salvation. First, uh, we will consider the greatness of God's love, the greatness of God's love. Second, we will consider that salvation is by faith alone. And third, there are two possible responses to Christ. Two possible responses to Christ. So John 3.16, uh, you will notice, include, has the word for. It begins with the word for, which connects it to the preceding uh, verses. In the preceding verses, Jesus tells us that he has to be lifted up. It's a reference to his eventual crucifixion. He has to be lifted up. He has to suffer for the salvation of the world. Uh, now, what is the source of that salvation? Why does Jesus do that? What is the ultimate reason uh, he comes into the world to save us? Verse 16 tells us, for God so loved the world. The ultimate source of our salvation is God's undeserved and unmerited love for sinners. And as we look at John 3.16, there are three ways in which we see the greatness of God's love. First way is the, that we see the greatness of his love is by noticing the object of his love. Whom does God love? Well, John tells us, God loves the world. Now, when we hear that word world, we are not to think of nature or creation or anything like that. When John uses the word world, he's typically referring to mankind in a state of rebellion against the Creator. Mankind rejecting God and seeking to live life according to its will rather than the Creator. So there's always a negative overtone. You see this, for instance, in John chapter 7, verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. John 15, 19, Jesus speaks to his disciples and says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So world is mankind uh, shaking its fist at God, mankind in rebellion against God. So what we might have expected John to say is this, God will judge the world, and he will, it's biblical. But the shocking thing is that God is said to love this rebellious humanity. When he looks at sinners defying his law, living the way that they want to, God loves them and desires not their destruction, as we'll see, but their salvation. The important thing to recognize about God's love for us is it's not based on anything in us. God doesn't look at us and say how lovely they are, how wonderful they are. No, there is nothing lovely about us. We are rebels and sinners, and yet God loves us anyway because he's that kind of God. He loves us out of his sheer goodness. As the Protestant reformer Martin Luther once put it, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. God doesn't look at us and say, how lovely. Well, he loves us uh, because he's that kind of God, because he's good. But his love changes us and makes us more and more beautiful. There's nothing in us 
to excite God's love, but he loves us anyway. It's the first way we, we see the greatness of his love. Second, we see the greatness of his love by its costliness, by what he gives. God so loved the world, so great was the intensity of divine love that he gave his only son. God's love for the world cost him something. It cost him the life of his son. Now, when John says that he gave his only son, uh, what he means is he gave Jesus as a sin offering. He gave Jesus to die condemned in our place, to bear the punishment that we deserve so that we might be reconciled to God. This is apparent from the immediate context. Again, if you look at verses 14 and 15, Jesus talks about being lifted up. He talks about his crucifixion. That's the sense in which God gave his son. He sent his son into the world to die in our place, condemned for um, the sins that we had committed. This giving of the son includes also the incarnation. Verse 17 makes that apparent. God uh, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Notice that language of sending. Uh, The father sent the eternal son into the world. He set aside uh, his rights as the creator of heaven and earth, and he became a lowly human being for us and our salvation. God's love cost him the life of his son. And that word only indicates the preciousness of the son to the father, the uniqueness of the son. Uh, It probably, uh, there's an allusion here perhaps to Genesis 22.2, where God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And he prefaces that command by saying, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. There's an emphasis there on Abraham's love for his son Isaac. God knows what a costly thing he is asking of Abraham. And in the same way, our Father in heaven is prepared to give the costliest sacrifice of all, the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing higher and better that God had to give for our salvation than his son Jesus Christ, and he did it. So we see the magnitude of God's love by by its costliness. And finally, we see the greatness of his love by its aim. He gave his only son, for what purpose? That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Without Jesus, we are condemned. That's the state of mankind without God's gracious initiative. Uh, we are rebels under the judgment of God. We have not gladly submitted to our creator as we were meant to do. We've, we've lived life, uh, life our own way in rebellion against him and his commands, and our natural condition is to be under his judgment. The direction all of us are going on, apart from Jesus Christ, is toward eternal separation from God, eternal judgment. We are a condemned race of men and women. But God's desire for us was not that we should perish and experience his judgment. God's desire for us was that we might experience eternal life through his son, Jesus. So he sent his son into the world for this purpose, to save us from our ruin, to save us from judgment, and reconcile us to himself, and give us the gift of a relationship with him and life as it was meant to be lived in his presence. God's love for us is very great, and we see that greatness by The objects of his love, he loves the unlovely. The costliness of that love and the aim of that love to save us from his judgment. How should we respond to that love? Well, first of all, God's love for us should humble us. When we recognize that we were beggars, 
with nothing in us to cause God to love us, but he did anyway out of his sheer goodness, that should cause us to respond with humble thanksgiving. We were like that beggar on the street corner, and someone shows up unasked for. Out of sheer goodness, they show up, they take off our dirty rags, and they clothe us and clean clothes and bring us into a relationship with God, with, with themselves. God has done something like that with us. Sheer undeserved mercy is why we have a relationship with him. So that should humble us. But in addition, it should give us confidence, a childlike confidence in God. Think of it this way. If God loved you when, when you were his enemy, to the point of giving his son for you, how much more now that you're no longer his enemy can you be confident in his love? If when you were dead in your sins and trespasses, he loved you to the extent of giving his son, how much more now can you be sure that God loves you and will always love you? That's incidentally the, the uh, argument that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans 5. He says, look, he was willing to give the life of his son for you when you were his enemy. How much more that, now that you are a child of God and his son lives, can you be confident of your salvation? Can you be confident of his love? As God's people, we can recognize that in absolutely everything he come, brings to pass in our lives, he is acting in love. Everything that God brings about in our lives is an expression of his fatherly care for us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that absolutely everything reflects God's commitment to your well-being? He loves you. Uh, that's why we can say like the psalmist at the end of Psalm 23 where he says, uh, he's confident that goodness and mercy will follow him all the days of my life. We can have the same confidence. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life because I have a Father in heaven who loves me and that love defines all his dealings with me. Second thing to notice about God's love for us is that it gives us the resources to love difficult people in our lives. It's very important. Gives us the resources to love difficult people in our lives. Inevitably, uh, there will be difficult people. Uh, people who have very little in them to, very little to admire and much to dislike, right? We're aware of these people. Um, you know, we're acquainted with pushy people who aren't very considerate of the people around them, that they want what they want and they're ready to trample on other people. Uh, we, we know uh, dull people who prattle on endlessly about things that don't interest us and they bore us. It's excruciating to you know, spend a couple hours over dinner with this kind of individual. And there are clingy people uh, who want far more attention and affection from us. They, they suffocate us with their neediness. Perhaps we know like, people like this. Uh, and, and, and the question is, how do we, how do we love them? Because God, God's desire for us is, in fact, to love these people. Uh, we shouldn't do what we might be tempted to do, which is to hold them at arm's length, uh, and hope that eventually, as we you know, hold them at arm's length, they'll go away on their own. Right? That's not God's will for us. His will is for us to love them. How do we do that? Well, we do that by recognizing that we are among the difficult people. We, when God looked at us, he didn't say, oh, this person's easy to love. We were unlovely in ourselves, and he loved us anyway. And when you see that that's how God loves you and has loved you, you're going to have the strength to consistently love the challenging people that he brings into your life. But the strength comes from feeding on his love. That's what enables you to do it again and again. By way of encouragement, uh, I read this uh, story in Tim Keller's Meaning of Marriage. Uh, he talks about an occasion where he had a particularly 
difficult couple at his church. And uh, nobody really wanted to spend time with this couple. They had issues, but Tim and his wife uh, felt that the right thing for them to do was to invest in this couple and help them uh, deal with some of their problems. So they get in there and they start uh, having a relationship with this couple. And uh, they pour themselves into these people. And one day on his day off, Tim Keller turns to his wife and says, Hey, wouldn't it be great to hang out with that couple? So I was surprised. What? Uh, why do you say that? He's like, and then it occurred to him when she asked, Oh, wait a minute, I actually want to be, I want, I want to spend time with these people. Uh, in spending himself on behalf of this couple over a long period of time, uh, his affections or emotions caught up to his actions. And he found himself actually wanting to spend time with them. That's an encouragement to us that as we love difficult people, you just might find that your affection for them increases with time. I'm sure you've perhaps experienced that in your own life. And that's often the way it goes. The people that you invest in become lovely to you. Second thing to notice in this passage then is that we are accepted before God solely on the basis of faith and not our works. There's a sense in which these verses, 16 through 18, are John's version of the Apostle Paul's doctrine of justification by faith alone. Uh, John is saying that there are two destinies, condemnation, eternal separation from God, or eternal life, eternity in his presence. And what causes a person to enjoy eternal life versus eternal condemnation, eternal separation from God? Well, whoever believes in him is not condemned. God loved us and sent us a Savior in Jesus Christ. And the appropriate response to that Savior is to place our trust in him. That's what makes the difference between everlasting ruin and everlasting life. Notice what John doesn't say. He doesn't say, to have eternal life, you need to get your act together, you need to pray more, you need to do good to the poor, uh, be generous, uh, do those things and God will accept you. No. He says, believe and you'll be saved. And the reason he can say that is because Jesus has done all of the work. Verse 17, he came into the world that we might be saved through him. Who's doing the saving? Jesus is doing the saving, and his work is perfect and complete, and nothing needs to be added to it. Through his death on our behalf, by bearing the judgment of God, he reconciles us to God. So all we need to do is simply rest in what he has accomplished for us. We don't need to do anything except to simply trust what he has done for us. And one of the things that means is that we can have confidence that our acceptance before God isn't continuously fluctuating, increasing and decreasing. I, I have, I've had a good day, so God really must accept me today, or I've had a terrible day. I'm not sure about my acceptance. Now, if our acceptance before God was based on our performance, then we would experience that kind of anxiety. Is he accepting me? Is he not accepting me? But precisely because our acceptance before God is based on what Jesus has done, and that work is perfect and complete, our acceptance before God is fixed and perfect and unchanging. By simply resting in what Jesus has done, we can be confident that at every point in our lives, God is for us, not against us. It's this, uh, it's, it's, think about what the alternative would mean. 
Let's suppose for a moment that acceptance before God was based on some combination of your faith and your works. What that would mean practically is you would never quite know if you've reached the moral bar. Uh, You'd never know, have I done enough? You'd be haunted by the suspicion that perhaps more could have been accomplished, that perhaps God desires more. And so you, you obey, but you obey out of fear. I want to do enough so God will accept me. But if the reverse is true, if God accepts you entirely because of what Jesus has done, the gift that you receive by faith, that means that you are as accepted on your worst day as on your best day. Uh, God accepts you independently of your striving. And that frees you to obey him and do good out of freedom and joy. You obey not to be accepted, but because you are accepted. This, was, uh, this principle was well illustrated in the life of Martin Luther, the uh, Protestant reformer. Uh, before he became a Protestant, he was a Catholic. Uh, before he ignited the Reformation, he was a, an Augustinian monk. And he was taught by some of his teachers the following. He was taught, to those who do what lies within them, God does not deny grace. If you, do, if you do what you can, if you do the best that you can, God will give you grace. It's actually, I think, the, the kind of common sense moral intuition that many people have about God. Do your best and he'll accept you, right? Uh, well, that's what he was taught in any case. But for Luther, it wasn't that simple. Here's how his biographer, Martin Marty, puts it. He faced a nagging issue. How could he be certain that he was doing his best and that his best was good enough to appease God? How would you ever know that you had done your best and therefore God would give you his grace? The fact is you can't know. There's inevitably, if you know yourself at all, an element of uncertainty. You, you know that. I'm sure there have been times when you have said, I've done my best. And then you go, well, well did I? Uh, it's not always easy to tell. And if that's your understanding of a relationship with God, that means that your life is going to be haunted by uncertainty, anxiety. Have I done enough? But when Luther understood the great truth that God saves sinners by grace through faith, he said, I could stand on my head for joy. My relationship with God is grounded on the firm foundation of Jesus' sacrifice, not my performance. And that means that my relationship with God is fixed and unchanging. The fact that we are saved solely on the condition of faith means that we can have confidence that we are accepted before God. Finally, note in the uh, final three verses of the section that there are ultimately two responses to Jesus. Two responses to Jesus. The first response is to reject the light that has come into the world. The reference in verse 19 to light is a reference to Jesus. He is called the light because in him, the truth about God shines most brightly. If we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. There we see the purity, the holiness, and the wisdom of God. So the light comes into the world in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we see what God is really like. And the response of mankind is to reject that light. Why? Because people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Because they do evil and rebel against the Creator, and they, they therefore love evil 
and hate the light and resist it and want to, want to run away from it. Uh, many times it's assumed that one of the reasons people don't respond in faith to Jesus is because there aren't sufficiently good arguments. It's an intellectual problem. And the solution, of course, is to create more sophisticated arguments and give more facts. The assumption is that people are honest seekers after the truth and they just need to get enough information. Actually, John gives us a very different, different description of the actual condition of mankind. The reason people don't respond to God and to his revelation in Jesus Christ is not primarily because they have intellectual objections. It's primarily because of their moral situation. It's because they love evil and want to live life apart from God that they reject uh, God's revelation in Jesus Christ. What needs to happen for them to accept Jesus is not one more argument. There's a place for arguments. There's a place for reason. But what needs to happen is ultimately that God would cause his light to shine in their hearts and conquer their rebellious will so that they see their sin and desire to submit to him. But that's the condition of every single human being, including the condition of those who eventually become believers. Verse 20 goes on and describes an additional reason people reject the light. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. We don't want the evil in our hearts and lives to be shown for what they are. We don't want the light shining on all of those dark places in our lives and so we suppress the truth about God. We run away from it. And this is, a, we can see this pretty readily. Uh, whenever someone criticizes us, or we criticize them, especially if it's a, it's a criticism of their character, what's the standard response? Someone says to you, hey, you really need to be working a little bit harder. In other words, you're lazy. Well, that stings. Or what if someone says that you're selfish? I see that you consistently put your needs and desires above everybody else. Or you're a little bit arrogant. You have a tendency to treat people with contempt. What's the characteristic response to that kind of criticism? Well, there's typically two. One is you turn the tables on the person accusing you. Who are you to say that I'm this way? Look at your life. Uh, the other way is to explain away. Yeah, I could see how they would think I'm lazy, but they don't know all the stuff that's going on in my life outside of work. They don't understand how hard I have it, and therefore I'm not really lazy. Uh, there's an explanation for the defects that other people see in me. Now, we get defensive when people give us a small criticism like that. We start to rationalize. How much more intolerable is it for a human being to stand before the gaze of God Almighty, to have your life and your thoughts and your desires perfectly displayed before him? The natural human response to that is to shudder and run as far away as possible. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want the darkness in our lives and hearts to be revealed for what it is. And so when God becomes man and comes to us, we run from him because we love the, love the dark and hate the light. Nevertheless, John says there's another category. Verse 21. Not everybody responds this way. In verse 21, John describes the way that Christians characteristically respond to God. He is not describing in verse 21 how you become a believer. He is describing how you behave once you've become a believer. Uh, it's important to recognize that the people in verse 21 were, were once in the category of verse 19 through 20. They, they were once the rebels who were running from God. So what has changed? 
Well, 21 tells us. They come to the light. Why? So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. God has intervened in their dark lives. He has transformed them. He has renewed their life so that they are increasingly walking in obedience to him. And so their characteristic response is to run toward the light rather than away from it. Because of God's intervention in their lives, they want Jesus and they want God. It's God's initiative and his work that causes them to be drawn to the light. It's not that they are intrinsically any better than anybody else including those in the darkness. That's where they used to be. What's the difference in the final analysis? God's undeserved intervention in their lives that causes them to want him. So as you look at these two categories, those who run from the light and those who run to it, where do you fall? Which category are you in? This morning, are you running toward God's light in Jesus Christ or away from it? Are you seeking to uh, live your life according to your own preferences and desires, making yourself functional king over your life? Or are you seeking out of love for God to submit to him more and more? As you look look at your life, you see that I'm I'm in the category that runs away from Jesus. God's invitation to you this morning is to stop running. God's invitation to you this morning is to turn around. God opens his arms wide to sinners and says, yeah, you don't need to fear the light. My son Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross so you can be washed clean of the darkness and not be afraid to step in the light and experience acceptance with me. If you're here, if you're here this morning and you've not placed your faith in Jesus, God's invitation to you this morning is to trust his son Jesus and live. But if you're here this morning and if you say, Praise God, I'm by no means perfect, but I love Jesus, and I want to obey Jesus. If you've stepped from the darkness to light, it's because God has done a miracle in your heart. He has conquered that radical rebellion in you, and he has given you an appetite for heaven's joys. Just as we can see the love of God revealed in the giving of his son, we can see the love of God revealed in the initiative he takes to give us a new heart that genuinely loves him and desires him. And our response to that love should be to love God back and to love him ever more deeply. Our response to his love should be to praise him and adore him and thank him, not only for sending Jesus, but also for giving us eyes to see. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are beggars. This is true. We don't deserve anything from your hand, but you have been pleased out of your sheer goodness to give us everything. Please grant that your love would penetrate into our souls and make a lasting difference in the way that we live. Lord Jesus Christ, grant us the strength as we behold your love to extend love to others in our lives. Amen.